0: you're listening to the king's church dc podcast king's church is located in the heart of washington dc and exists to make jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion purposeful living and community reconciliation we hope you enjoy the following sermon Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley, one of the pastors here at King's Church, and excited to continue in our series in Romans today. Uh, Today we're looking at the the shortest uh, collection of verses in Romans that we've done so far. Uh, So last time we were on stage, we took the entire chapter of Romans 11, and today we're just taking two verses uh, at the beginning of Romans 12, and we'll find that these are packed full with knowledge and insight and wisdom for us to glean from. Now, there are few and far... Uh, between areas of life where I feel like we can both overcomplicate and underestimate things at the same time. One of those areas that I found personally true in my own life uh, that I can both overestimate and, uh, excuse me, overcomplicate and underestimate is dating. Now, um, again, this is not a dating one-on-one seminar today. Uh, you can go to the Think Night, which I'll go ahead and plug that again uh, for more information there. But I, I just look back on my own life, and again, I know we, we talk a lot about uh, celebrating engagements and everything, uh, that we have the ability to overcomplicate things so quickly when it comes to relationships, while simultaneously also underestimating things when it comes to relationships. I can remember when I was asking a girl out uh, for the first time uh, how overcomplicated I made it. I began to get in my head so quickly that I, I, I had paralysis in my words, my ability to articulate anything to her, while also underestimating the, the very obvious cues that she was sending my way. That she was not interested, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's so easy for some of us to overthink things in life, and again, I think uh, dating is just one example of that. While at the same time, keeping our heads buried in the sand. And if we were honest with ourselves when it comes to dating, if we just kind of get our heads out of the clouds, stop overthinking it, it it may not be that hard to ask someone out. At the same time, if we get our heads out of the sand, we may just look around and be vigilant for two seconds and realize there's actually people who like us around us, right? Now, I use that as a segue here. That was not, you know, just start dating, guys. That was not uh, my my, uh, encouragement to that, although that's a good thing. Uh, I tend to do the very same thing when it comes to Christian living. When it comes to trying to figure out what it takes to live the Christian life, in my soul I wrestle with the reality of overcomplicating it while also underestimating it. And what I mean by that is is I can live in a too complex reality of what it means to be a Christian while also selling it way too short. I have the capacity to do these at the same time to in one breath get tied up in the knots of the theological intricacies of the Christian faith and to live above my uh, being in the clouds of knowledge while at the same time shrugging off Jesus himself. You see, the Christian life is is one that is complex at times when we think about the theology and, and what the Bible teaches us and the mysteries of God and all that we've been unpacking in Romans, but the Christian life living it is actually much more simple than we realize but we'll also find that it's much more encompassing than we realize. It is not something to overcomplicate, but it's also something to not underestimate. So how do we handle this in our own lives? How do we handle the tendency that I have in my own brain, and perhaps you do as well, to in in one breath overcomplicate what it means to live the Christian life while at the same time underestimating what it means? Well, I think this passage is going to help us today. Because in these two verses, we see a summary of the whole of the Christian life. What Paul is going to to paint for us is a thesis for what it means to live the Christian life. To see that it's not too complex, but it's also total. It's all-encompassing. It's profoundly simple and profoundly total at the very same time. And he teaches us this in this one simple phrase. This is the heart of these verses. That's our main idea today. And that is this, that the call of the Christian life is to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. That the call to Christian living is to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And when we do so, we'll realize that living the Christian life is not as complex as we want to make it, but we'll also find a day that it is totally encompassing. It is total. It takes all of us to do it. And we're going to look at the the scriptures today. We're going to see three things that are going to help us understand this idea. That number one, the Christian life is about depending on the mercies of God. We'll see that in verse one. And we'll see that Christian living is also learning to live as a sacrifice. We'll see that also in verse one. And then in verse three, we'll see that the Christian life, living the Christian life, is one where we become transformed and not conformed. And we'll look at what Paul means by that in verse two. Let's go and dive into the scriptures together, chapter 12, verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Paul sets the tone for us right here at the beginning. He opens the gates here with this appeal. What you see in Paul's heart is a love for the church, he appeals to them. He, he could command them. He could not order them to do something, but instead he comes with this appeal, and the word appeal is, is kind of a, a, a plea. It's an urging. For an ex, it's an explanation that comes with a more compassionate heart. So what Paul's essentially saying is, what I'm about to say to you is vitally important, and I'm urging you to listen. It's kind of like what I try to do with my kids sometimes, right? I, I try to urge them, please listen to mommy and daddy. We know what's best and they don't do that, so then I have to command them to do something, and they don't like that at all. I'm like, which one do you want, right? Like, I tried the appeal model, and it didn't work. But Paul is simply, he's coming as a, a spiritual father in the faith, and he's coming to these brothers and sisters, this church community, and he's saying, I urge you, listen to what I'm about to say. This is vitally important. This is for your good. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. And there's a small word in there that's so important, and that is the word therefore. And you've probably heard it said before, so I'm just gonna go ahead and say the cliches phrase, when there's a therefore in the scriptures, we need to ask what the therefore is. There we go, good job class. <laughs> it's vitally important because what Paul's doing here, what any writer of scripture, when we see the word therefore is doing, is connecting tissue. It's connecting what he's about to say with everything he's previously said. And what we find here in Romans 12, and why this is so important, is because Paul is transitioning. It's like a hinge on a door. He's transitioning the thought in this book so far in Romans 1-11, through 11, he has been expounding upon the gospel message. What we need to understand, the knowledge we need to gain, what we need to root in our hearts, and now what Paul's saying is now that we have that, we're going to turn and see how that affects the way we actually live. And so for the remainder of the book of Romans, he's going to focus on this idea of Christian living. What does it mean to actually live now that we have the knowledge of the gospel? Now that all the things that he's been explaining to us from Romans 1-11 through 11 have been rooted in our hearts and our minds, now what is it like to live it out? And if we were to try to summarize, which would be really hard to do, everything that we've learned in Romans one through 11, Paul's heartbeat has simply been this, that Christian, you are justified today, no matter who you are, you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That has been his heartbeat throughout the book of Romans so far. And now he's pivoting saying, now that you know that, therefore, how shall we then live? And what is the very first thing he points out here? He points out that the motivation for the Christian life is one of gratitude and dependency on the mercies of God. Notice that what Paul's saying, his case here is for all of us to realize that to live the Christian life, the one thing we have to see is that every single one of us needs to experience the mercy of God. Now, what are these mercies of God that he's talking about here? Well, the word mercies of God, the, the phrase here is, is simply the pity of God, the compassion of God. It's summarizing all that Paul has taught us so far that God, in his compassion, in his love for us, he has looked upon us in our needless and our hopeless state, and he has acted in love through Jesus Christ. That is the mercies of God. Now, that might seem kind of off-putting to you today, because that, that essentially means that you were hopeless, that you were in need. And we don't always like to think that way, We don't always like to think that we're in need. We we like to think that we have enough strength within ourselves or that we have the capacity within our own strength to achieve what we need to achieve in life. And so it can sound offensive or off-putting, but the Bible has a message for us all that he's expounded upon, particularly in the first few chapters of Romans, which is that every single one of us, no matter who we are today, we're all in need of God's mercy. All of us. The simple reminder for us today is to to not overcomplicate the Christian life, that every single one of us is in need meaning our salvation is not forged in the context of what we can achieve or our great strength or our personal triumph. It's not based on what we can do. Paul says that we are now brothers and sisters in the faith because of our neediness, because of our weakness, because of our vulnerability, because of our hopelessness, which means that the gospel creates something incredibly powerful here. Now when he says that we're a community, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God, what he is saying is that all of us come to the common place of seeing our need in Jesus, and Jesus meets us in our need. That's what it means to depend upon the mercies of God. To see that we have one condition today, and that condition is that we acknowledge our need, and that we see in Jesus that God is both rescuing us from our sins and delivering us from death. And what that forms is what's called the church, a community that sees that we need God's mercy. Now something profound when a a group of people come together and they see their common need for something. I actually witnessed this this week through my family and friends in Georgia. Uh, The the hometown that I grew up in was right in the the pathway of the hurricane this past week, and uh, a a small town in Georgia doesn't really get hurricanes often, so it hit them pretty hard. And my parents actually just got power last night. Um, They've been without power for four days. And in that process, what I've heard from fa- fr- friends and family is that with all the immense damage in the city and with the trees and the debris, everything, the power outages, everything that's gone on, what's been remarkable is that people from every walk of life have come together to help one another. That the way they responded to it was they came together and they helped each other out. No matter who they were, they helped each other out. And no one looked at the other and said, I survived this storm because of my achievement. I survived this storm because of my wealth. I survived the storm because of who I am, my status in society. No, they all realized that they needed to depend on one another because they all went through the storm together. And that is what it is like to be a Christian, to be part of the church. It is simply the starting point today for the Christian life is to put all of our guards down and simply relate to one another as those who can depend solely upon God for our salvation. That we are broken, that we are weak, that we are needy, but there's something beautiful about that shared experience that we can look at the beauty of God's mercy and that is the type of community we want to cultivate here at King's Church. A place where Christian living begins with one prerequisite and that's we acknowledge that to be in the presence of God, what we need more than anything is depend on his mercies. So The question becomes for us today, well, are we walking into a church gathering where we feel like we can actually depend upon the mercies of God in ourselves? Or are we cultivating that type of attitude that today when we walk into this place, we are depending fully on the mercies of God and on ourselves. You see, the mercies of God here are not just the foundation for Christian living, they're actually the motivation as well. They're the motivation because if all that Paul has expounded upon in Romans 1-11 through is true for us in Christ, the promises of Romans 8, the fact that although we fall short of the glory of God, there's a gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, all the things that we've uh, emphasized over the last few months, if all that is true for us in Christ Jesus, then the only proper response, the only reasonable response Paul is saying is that we put our full dependency upon him. If all that is true, everything that he's accomplished for us, if that has been true on our behalf, then how can we not live fully for him? See, the mercies of God here are not just the foundation of the Christian living, they are the motivation for Christian living. So what does that look like then? Well, Paul continues, and he says that to live the Christian life is to live as sacrifices. Look at what he says in verse one again. I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, reading this, Paul is presenting to us a paradox. He says you are to be a living sacrifice. Anyone in the Roman world, anyone from a Jewish background reading this, anyone from a Greek background reading this, anyone vaguely familiar with the rituals of the temple or or religion itself would look at this and say, this is utter nonsense, Paul. How can a sacrifice be living? The word sacrifice in the Greek literally means killing. And if you didn't know, by definition, killing means that something is not living anymore. So how can we reconcile these things? See, Paul's painting a new way of looking for the Christian at sacrifice. He's given us some unique traits about this living as a sacrifice for the Christian that differs for the way we view sacrifices, even in the Old Testament. And there's two unique factors about this. Number one, you notice here that when he says present ourselves as a living sacrifice, there is no blood. Now, typically, when a sacrifice happens, there is blood, right? A sacrifice just doesn't get off the altar and walk away. Something happens, and the reason for that is because when we look in the Old Testament and even just expand that beyond the Old Testament, we think about the idea of sacrifice, it comes from this idea that there is divine judgment and justice. There is this absolute right and there's absolute wrong, which means that the absolute right must be upheld and the absolute wrong must be dealt with. That something has to be appeased, something has to be atoned for. That sin must be punished in some way. Blood is needed for that. So you go back to the Old Testament you see the sacrificial system and that is what it's pointing to that a sacrifice has to happen, blood has to be present for there to be uh, atonement, for there to be appeasement, to be right with God. But here Paul says for the Christian to live as a living sacrifice doesn't mean that we live to atone something or somehow appease God or to earn his favor. See, to be a living sacrifice doesn't—it's not the position of saying, all right, God, I will do this for you. I will live for you if I get a reward in return. It's not a position where we attempt to earn God's favor. It's a response to God's favor. It's not a sacrifice that we make out of fear or guilt or some concern that we're going to have a negative consequence if we don't live up to it. It's a sacrifice that we make out of thankfulness and joy because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. See, when we depend on the mercies of God, and we see our need for Jesus and what He has done for us, then the response is that we then sacrifice our life daily out of thankfulness and joy. It's not to earn God's favor; it's in response to His favor. But the second factor here is that this sacrifice is not just done once and for all. You see, when you look in um, again the Old Testament, you see to to, to appease God's justice, your animal or your grain offering, or whatever it may be that you take to the altar, you take to the altar, and it pays a specific debt. And once that debt is paid, it's paid in full. But notice the living sacrifice here is not once and for all. It's not paid once and then you're done. A living sacrifice means that every hour of every day of every week of every year, it's a sacrifice. Meaning that's constant. Meaning that's intentional. Meaning that it's perpetual. It's deliberately giving yourself to God. It's a constantly offering ourselves to Him in joy and gratitude. Now, what does this look like practically? Well, let's think again back to a normal sacrifice we'd see in the Old Testament. When you're giving up an animal, what you're doing there is you're you're actually surrendering your right to that particular animal. You're, You're giving it up to be sacrificed. You're saying, I'm giving up ownership of this animal, whether it's a goat or bull, whatever it is, you're giving that right up to sacrifice it. When a living sacrifice, again, it doesn't die once. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that we're giving it up day after day. We're dying daily to it. And what is he saying that we're dying daily to? We're dying to the notion both that we control our lives and that we can live however we want. That is what it means to be a living sacrifice, to live as a sacrifice. It is to daily, to perpetually give ownership of our lives and say, God, we are no longer in control of our lives and we are no longer in control to live the way we want to live. Now again, a normal sacrifice, you hold the right to control that sacrifice, whether it's a lamb or a goat, until it's sacrificed. What we're saying here is that on a daily basis, the Christian life is one we say we sacrifice our right to control our lives, our jobs, our resources, our family, our home life, our personal comforts, and so on. It's a full dependency of giving it all to God. It's saying, God, I entrust to you I relinquish control over to you every part of my life, every single day. Now that sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? And it is. But the truth of the matter is, we're daily dying to something anyways. Every single one of us. We're daily sacrificing our lives for something already. If you're here in Washington DC, you probably quickly realize that one of the chief professional aspirations, one of the chief professional drivers of life is to make a difference in this world. Everybody comes here and says I'm gonna change the world. I'm gonna make a difference in this world. I'm gonna be influential, right? And what do we see people do daily, daily, daily? They sacrifice their time, their relationships, their health even to try to become someone who's influential and, and whether that happens or not, it leaves them unsatisfied. Or, or go out on the west coast for a moment. Let's take a trip over to the west coast. Let's go to Hollywood. What is the chief aspiration there? It is to be loved, to be famous, to be a star. And then you, you, you die on the, the every day. You sacrifice on the altar of that. And when you achieve it, you realize that you're not as loved as you thought you were. And, and you're not as beautiful in the eyes of the people as you thought you were. And it leaves you unfulfilled and unsatisfied. The point is this. No matter, no matter where you are today, no matter who you are today, we're all making sacrifices. We're all putting something on the altar every single day. It's not just something we put, do once, we do it every single day. So the question is not whether we'll be doing it, the question is why are we doing it? Is it an attempt to atone or to appease the gods of influence, and power, and comfort, and fame? Or is it truly an expression of gratitude and joy because of the mercies of God? That every day we make the decision to give our lives on that altar for him. You see, these verses remind us that the Christian life is comprehensive. This idea of living as a sacrifice is comprehensive. Notice what he says, he says, in view of God's mercy, offer what? Your body, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service, as some translations say, the logical conclusion of a sacrifice is to be a life of worship, to live a life of worship, is what he's saying. It's completely comprehensive. And it's not just a spiritual thing, Paul says. He says, present your bodies, it's not just a spiritual exercise, what he's saying here is the totality of your life is a life of worship now. The totality of your life, your thought life, your emotional life, what you do with your body, the work you do, the relationships you have, how you treat your neighbors, It's private and public, it's spiritual and physical, it's individual and communal which means to live as a sacrifice is to say God cares about my prayer life, and he also cares how I treat others. It means to live as a sacrifice, God cares that I have integrity in my thought life, and he cares how I have integrity in my work life. It also means that we don't just come to worship on a Sunday, but that we're actively worshiping from Monday through Saturday. That worship is our whole life. Now let's not get that twisted either, okay? Because another rebuttal is, well, why do we have to come to church on Sunday then if worship is life, right? (laughs) Why are we here today? Well, remember who Paul's writing to, and I think this is very important to point out. He's writing to a community. He's writing to a group of believers in Rome. And notice what he says here. Essentially what Paul is saying here is that a Christian, it's impossible for a Christian to offer his or her life to God as a living sacrifice on their own. Notice what he says here. He says, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as what? A- a single living sacrifice. What Paul is communicating to us is that we actually come together as the church to do this. He's not just saying individually, let's all go present ourselves as living sacrifice. He's saying communally, let's come together as brothers and sisters and present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Which reminds us that a solidarity Christian is, is not uh, something that we see in the Bible, right? Because to be a Christian is to be connected to the church. And when you're connected to the church, you realize that when we come together, and again, we'll look more uh, to this in the coming weeks because basically that's what Paul's going to talk about in the rest of chapter 12. When we come together as a church, we're not just coming to attend a church service. We're coming to be part of a community, a community that allows us to grow into what it means to be a living sacrifice. And so it's comprehensive, right? Paul is saying that to be a living sacrifice is comprehensive. It's fully engaged to everything that we are. We give everything, we sacrifice everything we are and we live that out every single day. Now, that can seem pretty daunting, right? I don't know about you, but thinking about that can seem pretty paralyzing. Like, what do I do then? Like, what do I do next? This sounds so big, so, so beyond me. I need some direction. Well, that's what he gives us in the next verse. He says, we're also to be transformed, not conformed. Look at verse two. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in this sentence, there are two brilliant insights that we have to see. The first is this. Every single one of us, every single moment of every single day, we are all constantly being conformed into a pattern or image of something. We are constantly being conformed to the pattern of a particular status quo. Paul leaves no option for nonconformity. He says, we're all doing it. Every single day, we're, we're falling into some pattern. And the pattern he talks about is, is the conformity to this world. And we use the language of the world. What he's talking about is conforming to a perspective that leads God out of the equation. It, it, it's conforming in a way to being shaped by it, being influenced by it, being f- uh, fallen in line with it, even subconsciously. And oftentimes we do that subconsciously, Right? This idea of being conformed to the world is not something that's always or even often aggressive or out loud, right? It pulls us subtly away from the heart of Jesus and the truth of his word. And and if you're wrestling with, well, am I being conformed to this world? Here are just a few simple questions, right? When you read God's word, do you try to find loopholes in it? Uh, are, are, are Are you... trying to reinterpret scripture to fit your preferences and letting it instead of letting it renew your mind. Uh, or or are you are you withholding certain areas of your life from the lordship of Christ right now? Or the things that you're elevating as valuable more than Christ in your life. When you ask these questions, you begin to realize wow, there are subtle ways, it's so subtle how we begin to conform to this world. It's like I remember growing up uh, when I was really young um, i going to the beach every summer with my family. We'd go to the beaches of Florida, and my brother and I, we'd get on our little boogie boards because we couldn't surf. Um, and, and we'd go out and we'd paddle out for, for you know, 20 or 30 minutes at a time, and we're out there. And then all of a sudden, we'd look up to the shoreline and we would see our parents. And we realized, because of the, the current, we had drifted down probably 100 yards away from them. I always wonder why my parents didn't come get us, but uh, I guess back in the late 90s, free-range parenting, which is different than it is now. Um, but, but we, we would look back and we we realize, we're, we're way off course, right? And so over time, what we realized was that, well, if, if we're going to stay aligned to where our parents are, if we're going to stay aligned to where they are, then, then we have to be vigilant, right? We needed to be vigilant to stay aligned with our parents. It, it didn't mean that we didn't have fun, right? It didn't mean we had to get out of the water. But it meant that periodically we had to look up. We had to realign ourselves to swim against the current. And the same is true for us. You see, we go on living in this world. And you know what? We should have fun in this world that God has created. But in doing so, we have to navigate the current that is around us. And we do so by being vigilant so that we can stay aligned with our Father. Which leads us to the second reality of this short verse. That the only way that we're not going to be conformed to the status quo is to be transformed. The only way that we can avoid being conformed to the status quo of this world is to be transformed. That the only way to live a non-conformist life to the pattern and the mold of this world is to be so keenly tuned to the drumbeat of another kingdom, another truth, a greater good, that we begin to consistently conform to that reality instead. What that means is that we have to have a constant, ongoing, vigilant attachment to Christ. It happens through our prayer life, It happens through taking his word seriously. It happens through fellowship with God's people, because often God's people the church are the voices that God is saying to you, friend, don't drift, right? It's like our spiritual buddy system that we need. But notice that in all that, Paul is not telling us to transform ourselves here. Paul is saying, be transformed. This is not just mechanical. It's not just, let's change a few behavioral practices in our lives, he says something has to happen to transform us. The word transformed here is, it, is where we get our word metamorphosis from. Now, I'm no expert um, when it comes to butterflies, but I've seen a lot of butterflies this weekend with my daughter. And since she loves butterflies so much, uh, she gave me a quick science lesson yesterday. And so I told her I would have to use this illustration now. Um, and so Ellie was explaining to me that, of course, the caterpillar. Uh, We know this, right? The caterpillar gets in its cocoon, or as L.A. calls it, its cage. Um, Don't know how accurate that is. Uh, (laughs) And in the cage, right, in the cocoon, uh, it doesn't just begin to rearrange its body parts, right? It doesn't just start reading up on a manual of like, oh, let me learn how to fly one day. No, what it does is is there's something happening. These enzymes are being released that begin to actually recreate this caterpillar into something brand new a completely new creation, with wings and antennas and all that. And then a little bit later, it begins to poke a hole in that cocoon, and then it opens its wings, and it just begins to fly like it's, like it's natural. right? No one had to t- teach it how to do that. No one had to show it how to do that. It just doesn't. It becomes second nature. And this is so true of what it means to be transformed for us today as well. That we can only be transformed by the power of God that through the gospel, it is like God is releasing these enzymes into our system through the Holy Spirit that changes who we are. It recreates us so that we can take spiritual flight and it can become second nature to us. So the things like prayer and fellowship and reading the Bible become second nature to us now. They're not labors that we have to do mechanically. They are now part of who we are. And so we can be vigilant now. But we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms us. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to use activity in your life to transform you. What that means is that we cannot just sit passively in the Christian life and say, all right, I'm just going to wait on the Holy Spirit to act. No, passivity leads to conformity always. But the Holy Spirit wants to use the activities that he has given us, the, the resources he has given us, like Christian fellowship, like the Bible, like access to God through prayer, to transform us into being image bearers of his Son, so when we give our lives as a sacrifice to him, and we depend on his mercies, he forms us into a new creation. And he specifically says what that does for us is it renews our minds. Again, he's leaving nothing out of the, the totality of the Christian life here. He says we need renewed minds, a renewed way of thinking, new discernment, new wisdom. Why? He says, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, when you hear language like discerning the will of God, you probably think it's something pretty mysterious, right? The first thing that comes to mind is like you got a a crystal ball or something, like one of those magic eight balls, and you shake it up, and you're like, let me know what the will of God is, right? It's something mysterious, something far from us. And Paul says it's not really that mysterious here. It's not really that complicated. This is what he says here is that when we renew our minds to the work of the Holy Spirit through his word, it begins to clarify our thinking. It clarifies our decision-making. It opens up up our eyes to truth, that the way we think and the way we decide things and the way we value things can actually fit in a way that pleases God, which is why he emphasizes here that it is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. Now, I know at various points, all of us here in this room have probably asked ourselves that question, what is God's will for my life? Perhaps we've asked it in this question, what does God have in store for me in the future? And, And often we don't get audible voice answers to that. But honestly, when we think about the will of God, what, what, really what we're thinking about is situational awareness. What we're thinking about is what does God's will for me in this situation, in this moment? It, it could be something like a relationship, it could be something like a job choice or a job change, it could be something like a move that you're contemplating. What is God's will in this situation? How do we know what his will for us? Well, he tells us here in verse two. He says that when we renew our minds by the work of the Holy Spirit through his word, that we can actually walk in a way that is good acceptable perfect. In other words, what we find in scripture is that the will of God is presented more about what we become and less about something we're trying to find out there. It changes our thinking, the way we think, the way we adopt the information we receive to make choices in this life. So if you want to know what the will of God is, is, it is fulfilled here in this text. It is fulfilled by learning how to worship God above everything else in our lives is fulfilled by leaning uh, on him and offering ourselves as a living sacrifice for him. So if you're wondering what God's will is for you right now, you need to just ask the simple questions of this passage, right? Am I a living sacrifice? Am I seeking his wisdom? Am I giving my life fully to Christ? If the answer is yes to those, then you're in God's will. That doesn't mean he might, he might not tell you exactly what job to take next, but you can know that your decisions will be honored to the Lord. Because God's goal for his church, for Christian living here, is that we become the type of people who depend on him, who think like him, who worship him above all else, and who learn to live like a sacrifice, presenting ourselves like a sacrifice for him. So as we come to the Lord's table, let's just ask this one simple question. What are we sacrificing on the altar of our lives today? What have we struggled with today as conforming our lives. What pattern, what mold, what expectations, what demand of something that we believe if we conform our lives to, it, it will actually give us love. It will give us acceptance. It will give us ma- something that matters in life. What is it that we're sacrificing on the altar today? So the Bible tells us that all these other gods, and whether we want to call it that or not, that's what they are. All these other gods, all these other things that we could strive for, they will crush us when we failed him. They will never forgive us and they will never give us the kind of love that we're seeking. But the Bible tells us there is a God who can offer you the kind of love that we seek every day. A love that we look in all these other places in the world that we sacrifice on the altar of our lives day after day after day. The Bible tells us that God actually gave up his own life to meet the demands of that love, a love that we cannot meet the demands of. And the Bible tells us that because he has atoned for our sins and he has rescued and delivered us, that he now looks upon us with mercy and with love. See, the Christian's understanding is that there's one true sacrifice, and that was the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We look to all the other gods in this world that demand everything, every ounce from us, and they can never deliver for us. We have a God who lays down and gives up everything he has, even his own life so that we can know today that we are loved. Even in the midst of our failures, even in the midst of our weaknesses today, the living God became a dying sacrifice so that we can look at a dying Jesus on the cross and become a living sacrifice. You see the call here? To present yourselves as a living sacrifice is a call to freedom. It's actually the only way we'll experience freedom in this life. Because when you live for the one true God, when you understand what it looks like to live for the one true God, then and only then are we fully alive. So do you know him today? Has his love set you free from the demands of every other way in which we're sacrificing our lives? Have you been transformed by the renewing of your mind because of the love that Jesus offers you today? Again, church, this passage reminds us that the Christian life is not to be overcomplicated, but it is all-encompassing. Following Jesus is simple, but it must be total, everything. When we do that, we find that we have a God who gave his all for us so that we can live for him. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC Podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.